Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Queen Elizabeth II passed away yesterday, of course, so we'll take a moment to honor her life and reign with McGill University's Royal Watcher, Professor Peter McNally, and Ron Foxtroff, the CEO of Fluke Transport. A staggering number of parents are worried that their children have fallen behind in their studies because of the pandemic. Jennifer Lee, Chief Growth Officer at Photomath, will join us. And the European Union unveiled a plan to curb energy prices, ravaging that continent right now. What's the plan? What are the implications? Well, we'll talk about that as well. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We pretty much knew just around this time yesterday morning on the program uh, when we heard, first of all, that she was ill and that uh, family members were being told to go to Balmoral Castle in Scotland. And uh, nonetheless, uh, her passing has had a, a profound impact, I think, on so many different people. Uh, to talk about that and what's going to be happening going forward, we are so pleased to welcome to the program Peter McNally, uh, Professor Emeritus with the School of Information and the Director of History with the McGill Project at McGill University and also McGill's Royal Watcher. Uh, Professor, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you so much for the time today. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's great being here. Well, let's talk a little bit about the last 24 hours or so. As I say, it, it seemed as if something was going on. We knew the Queen had not been in good health uh, for the last little while. Uh, but are you surprised by the outpouring of, of grief and, 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 and the tributes that you've heard over the last 24 hours? Uh, globally, really, not just here in Canada or, or in the UK. Uh, you're absolutely right. It, it has been global. It's been worldwide. In fact, uh, last night I did a, also an interview with a with a, with a, uh, with with a network coming out of Singapore, if you can imagine. So right across Asia. But you're, but uh, when you think about it, the British Commonwealth, of which the Queen was ahead, this encompasses one quarter of the world's population, about 2.5 billion people. And so therefore, you know, right, the Commonwealth itself involves so many people. But on top of this, the Queen, having been head of state of, uh, for 70 years, uh, traveled to over 100 countries, many of them many times, all of the Commonwealth countries. Um, she's been in the media spotlight since her childhood. She's been uh, the, one of the most watched people uh, of our age. I, I guess it would be surprising if she wasn't uh, observed and if people weren't uh, going to be moved and upset with her death. Well, there are a lot of people around the world, and I've talked to a lot of folks over the last 24 hours, certainly, uh, who only know Queen Elizabeth. I mean, she's, as you say, was was on the throne for 70 years. Uh, you know, that she's become just about as standardized as, as the Rocky Mountains or something else. The Queen is always there. Yes, Queen Elizabeth is the Queen. It's uh, it, it's, it's as if something that, that we're used to and something that we sort of relied on and counted on being there is no longer there. Well, that's right. She was truly an icon, the most photographed person who's ever lived, uh, the most portraits. She appeared on stamps and on postage from countries all over the world, even countries that weren't part of the Commonwealth or had never been part of the British Empire. They still would put her on her stamps because uh, she was uh, so well known. She, she was such an icon. But there was also, remember, more than this. There was something about the woman's personality and her character. On the one hand, this was a shy woman, but at the same time, this was also a woman who had this great sense of uh, 
of, of, of devotion, of beauty. And so she would, she, and, and she obviously loved people. So she would interact with people. And remember what she always said, she needed to be seen to be believed. And so this was part of her going out uh, constantly, uh, interacting with people. And then, of course, there was the way she dressed with these very vivid, uh, bright, bright colors that she wore. Uh, a tiny woman, you know, she was only about five foot tall, uh, at her most maybe five two, wearing high heels, but she was not a, uh, a big woman. But yet uh, she had so much presence. And uh, whenever you saw a group of, uh, of important dignitaries together, she always stood out. It was partly the way she dressed, but it was this personality, and it was this devotion to duty. She understood what her job was and did it to the end. Well, we saw that yesterday, I think, uh, didn't we, uh, Professor, with the comments from the Prime Minister, uh, who was clearly deeply touched by this. I mean, I, I know he, I guess, met the Queen the first time when he was just a child and his father was the Prime Minister. Uh, and he'd had a number of subsequent meetings. But uh, as you could tell, this was not just reading something from a script that somebody prepared for him. He was, he was quite emotional. Yes, and you want the same thing, too, when you listen both to two former prime ministers, Sean Chrétien and, uh, and Brian Mulroney. And the wonderful stories they told about her and how they um, uh, interacted with her with, with such ease. And uh, she did this right across the world. Uh, President uh, Biden down in the United States talked that way. So did the French President Macron. Um, this was a woman who uh, knew all the world's great leaders. She was obviously a very, very quick uh, uh, reader of people. She understood them. Uh, she understood the world's uh, uh, diplomatic situation very well. And it was understood that if you really wanted to get a good reading of particular leaders or situations, she was often the one to turn to because she had met them all and uh, she, she, was, she was very astute. And always prepared, as you noticed. We know that from the visits to Canada, certainly. She had a, a very in-depth knowledge of this country, its politics and its people, uh, as she did in all the other places that she visited. Uh, she had a great tradition, and, and she believed in the tradition of, of the monarchy and the crown, certainly, Professor, as we saw time and time again. But in those 70 years, uh, a lot happened. A lot happened that hadn't happened to previous monarchs. Uh, I mean, look at what, what we have done as a, as, a, as a people in the last 70 years, the evolution technically and, and technologically and everything else. And, and she rode that wave, and it was probably difficult for her at some times. I mean, even from a, a personal level, uh, you know, the, the family concerns, the family problems, the things that we all put up with and, and have to tolerate and have to wade through, she had to do at the same time. You know, th three sons that were divorced. I mean, that, that, that doesn't happen to the royal family. But uh, at a number, and of course, the death of Diana, and there's a, a long list of things like that. And she, she was resilient through that whole thing, wasn't she? Well, re really absolutely remarkable. And as you said, her adaptability is really something. You know, uh, I, I, I'm old enough to remember when I was a boy growing up, uh, hard, there were hardly any divorced people whatsoever. Yeah, getting a divorce in Canada up until the mid 1960s into 1970 or so was extremely difficult. Um, I live in Montreal. Dear Lord, there was uh, to get a divorce in Montreal in the old days in Quebec. You had to have an act of parliament passed virtually. No, no divorce was permitted in Quebec. And she lived in that world over in England as well, too. But we've seen the world change. 
um, uh, you know, three of her children are divorced. Well, come on. Uh, <laughs> we all look around uh, in our personal lives, our families, our close friends at the number of uh, divorces. I mean, we, we understand this. It, it, these things happen. And uh, so I think that she learned that she had to adapt. She also had to adapt to new technologies, to new political realities. She realized that she wasn't always uh, as popular in some places as she was in others. But, you know, her job was she got out there. She did what needed to be done. And, uh, she, uh, and, she, and she did it very successfully. But part of it was, how does the old saying go, you don't sweat the small stuff. And uh, she, all, she, I think she had a very clear notion of what the major things to concentrate upon were, and maybe you don't concentrate so much on the other things. You know, it's interesting as, as you look back, and of course we've seen a lot of, uh, of footage over the last 24 hours, especially of uh, various visits to Canada, for instance. Uh, and she did the ceremonial thing very well. I mean, she had a great respect for the monarchy and for, the, and for her role uh, as, as queen. But it was interesting, you mentioned the, the comments from former Prime Ministers uh, Kretchen and, and Mulroney uh, and other world leaders. And it's amazing. The consistent thing I noticed last night in watching all those news clips, Professor, is you know, they would start out with a tribute about what a wonderful queen she was. But invariably, within a couple of seconds, they got down to anecdotes about her personality, about the way she was, uh, the quips that she would make. I mean, she's a very witty person, very funny person. And, and yes. I've heard that from so many other people that have met her that said, you know, she was she was not just uh, the, the regal queen, but she had a sense of humor. Uh, she'd, you know, uh, go off the uh, record sometimes, you know, with a little quip or something to just to kind of lighten the room. And uh, I think the one that really stuck with me was uh, former Prime Minister Mulroney talking about the one time when she was in Ottawa and uh, invited them to lunch at uh, the residence. And uh, it was, and he says, we spent three hours there. She says she, he, she kicked off her feet and we just talked about everything and everybody. Uh, and at the, her insistence and said, but, uh, so she was a human being too. And she, she really loved uh, interacting with people, didn't she? Well, I think this was it. You know, the thing about her that was really quite intriguing was is that at one level, you know, she seemed to be so aloof and untouchable. You see these photographs of her wearing tiaras and and uh, and and uh, diamond necklaces and these extravagant uh, evening dresses she'd wear. And uh, but yet at another level, you'd see her uh, wearing, as she did, for instance, when she met the new British Prime Minister, wearing um, a plaid skirt and a cardigan sweater. You could see her wearing a Wellington boots. And and, uh, and, and a raincoat uh, out tramping across the, the, the moors of Scotland or in a, uh, in a field with horses and this sort of thing. And yet at the next moment, she'd be wearing uh, one of these extravagant outfits of hers with, with jewels and all the rest of it. And I think it was that, that spread of things that made her so fascinating. And the fact that you say, she did relate to people. Uh, the likes of us probably never had the opportunity of Mulroney and Craig uh, of having dinner with her and one-to-one -one conversations. But I think there was something about her that people appreciated. This was a good person who was making an effort to, to, to uh, interact and to have a connection with them. Uh, and uh, I, I think people related to this uh, somehow. Instinctively, you looked at her and you thought, yes, this is a good, decent person. Professor, thank you so much for sharing some time with us today. I really appreciate it. Listen, it's been a great uh, pleasure speaking with you and with your audience. I hope everybody has a good day. And God save the King.
Exactly. Professor Peter McNally from McGill University. Thank you again. And, and this is one of the things that, that I think really stuck with me is I've talked to other people. I've never clearly had the pleasure to see the queen or meet the queen myself, but talking to other reporters and other dignitaries, our, our dear friend Lincoln Alexander, of course, in his role as Lieutenant Governor and, of course, Member of Parliament before that, uh, had occasion to meet her on a number of different occasions and told me some wonderful stories. And so did our next guest, uh, Ron Foxcroft. Uh, we know, of course, as the uh, the president and CEO of Fluke Transport and Fox 40. Uh, and and one of uh, Hamilton's distinguished citizens, of course, in the Gallery of Distinction. But one of his other roles, of course, was uh, was as a uh, honorary colonel in the Royal Hamilton Light Infantry. And in that role, uh, he had an audience with the Queen just a few years ago. Uh, and Ron, I, I I know I'm pulling you out of a meeting, but I thank you for doing that. But I just I wanted to get a full, few moments with you this morning to talk about your experience. I mean, to 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 meet Her Majesty and and to spend a fair bit of time with her at Buckingham Palace. We actually did, Bill, uh, on on the untimely death of Corporal Nathan Cirillo. Of course, the Queen is our Colonel-in-Chief, a very proud Colonel-in-Chief of the Argyle Regiment, and, and immediately following the funeral uh, on the tragic death of uh, Corporal Nathan Cirillo, uh, one of our true heroes, she reached out to us, to the regiment, with an email and, and asked uh, Colonel Kennedy, and Colonel Hatfield, our CO at the time, to come to Buckingham Palace because as Colonel-in-Chief, she felt an immense responsibility to express condolences to the Cirillo family. Catherine uh, Marcus, of course, was four years old at the time, and the entire family. So I went out there with uh, to Buckingham Palace, to her apartment, with Colonel Kennedy and Colonel Hatfield, and we had a private audience, which was scheduled to be for 10 minutes. It actually turned into an hour, and it's an hour of our lifetime, Bill, that we will never forget. And and we came out of that meeting, uh, and I have to say that even to this day, she was the most remarkable leader in world history. She is amazing and so many things came out of that meeting you know her her public persona was very structured obviously she knew when we walked into her apartment her two corgi dogs were right beside her mm-hmm. she had a very calming resolve towards us knowing full well we were meeting her majesty queen elizabeth uh Colonel-in-chief of our regiment, and we were nervous. Within seconds, Bill, she had a calming resolve for all of us and entered into what we saw was basically uh, not Queen Elizabeth, but a real person that started to engage in real conversation. It's, It's a time that we will never forget. Also, too, Bill, uh, it was communicated to us by Her Majesty that Canada, as a country, was her second home. She loved Canada. She loved Canadian people, and Canada was her second home. 
Talk to me about the, I only got a couple of minutes left here. I wish we had more yeah. time to, to talk about and reminisce about this, Ron. Uh, but the conversation itself, as you say, you went in there. I, I would, by the way, I would hate to have been her appointment secretary because uh, you're about the 19th person I've talked to that says, yeah, it was supposed to be a 60-second meeting. And it went on for like 45 minutes. She just, she she was, first of all, very knowledgeable uh, about the regiment, about Canada, about Hamilton, about what was going on. And, and she initiates these conversations. And, and as I say, she was so disarming. I mean, you've probably, as you say, well, Two minutes into this, you forgot you were there with the Queen. You were just there with a wonderfully informed lady who wanted to talk to you about things. No question. And and one thing that stuck with us and has stuck with us to this day, she turned to us and she said, I'm a proud colonel-in-chief of the Argyle Regiment. Bill, she had done her homework. She knew everything about the regiment, knew everything about Hamilton, and knew everything about the circumstances around Corporal Nathan Cirillo. And then she did say something, Bill. She said to us, and this has stayed with us, with Colonel Kennedy and Colonel Hadfield in our regiment, she said, I am full aware that the best trained reservists in the military in the world are Canadians. And boy, oh boy, I'll tell you, when she said that, that just penetrated into our are are meeting to to the extent that you could hardly describe there's no adjective to describe that and 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 then she went on to obviously express condolences to the family she knew Catherine's name she knew Marcus's name she knew Marcus was 4 years old and and you know she is very intelligent and very learned and then it kind of turned into just to be a conversation with a normal person. And she turned to us and said, would you like to see our garden? And I turned to her and I said, Your Majesty, you've done a wonderful job cutting your lawn, to which she has a little (laughs) cheeky sense of humor. She said, that's my John Deere over there. And I cut that every week, that corner every week, for these beautiful dogs to go for their walk. (laughs) <laughs> oh, she was a mechanic in the war, so I think I, I know we're running late. Th- Thirty seconds, though, because I know that as a, as an, a gift, and uh, you you brought a Fox Forty whistle to give to her, uh, which yes. she did not know was going to happen, of course, because he just it was kind of a, a an impromptu thing. But she had a comment about that too, about the geese on the front lawn or something. Oh yeah, she turned to me and said, "Colonel, are you responsible for bringing those Canada geese to poop on my lawn?" And to which I said, uh, "Your Majesty, I have a solution here. I gave her a Fox 40. She put it in her mouth and she said, "You know, this is better than a shotgun." But Bill, <laughs> she was an amazing person. She was a listener. She was caring. She was charming. And above all, she loved the Canadian military, loved the Argyles, was proud of the Argyles. And above all, she loved Canada. Just the most remarkable leader in the world today. We all thought she would last forever. Uh, Today is a very sad day. It is. Uh, Ron, thanks so much for spending some time with us today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Bill. Take care. Ron Foxcroft, of course, from Fox 40, reminiscing about his audience with the Queen uh, just a couple of years ago. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Only a couple of days into the school year here in Ontario, but already there are some concerns. There was a poll that was just released a, a couple of days ago that uh, I think underscores some of the concerns that parents have. Uh, this finds that 57% of Canadian parents worried that their children have fallen behind in their education. 
because of the pandemic, the closures, the, the remote learning in some cases. There's a whole long list of things that we've talked about, of course, on the program. Uh, so anyway, uh, the folks at Angus Reid did a survey for uh, PhotoMath, a, a, a math app, actually, that we'll get to in just a couple of seconds. Uh, this report is called Barriers and Bridges in Canadian Learning. And, uh, and I think it really exposes some concerns that parents are having about the way the education is going, and uh, especially for their young kids, and especially when it comes to one of the key elements of education, of course, that being math. Uh, Jennifer Lee is going to join us right now. Jennifer is the Chief Growth Officer at PhotoMath. And uh, first of all, Jennifer, thank you for the time. It's great to have you with us this morning. Thank you, Bill. Really glad to be here. Well, the numbers are, are, are maybe not surprising because, I mean, I've heard anecdotally over the last couple of years as, uh, you know, schools closed for a while, they're open again and remote learning and, and you know, the class sizes is a lot of concern. And uh, I, I'm, I'm not surprised at all that parents are kind of concerned about this and say, look, it, I, th I think we're losing space here. I think we're losing time here. Uh, and, and I think it's a legitimate concern. And I guess the question the parents are going to have is, oh, well, you know, how can I help? And... As, as the survey indicated here, an awful lot of parents, probably I would think the majority of them, are not really equipped to do that. I mean, it's one thing to say, I'm going to try to help my, my, my kids out with their homework or with their math. Uh, but if you don't know it, uh, how can you help them with it? And it's, it's got to be a very frustrating exercise, I would think, for parents. Yeah, Bill, you're spot on. And it's actually the reason why PhotoMath was created. Um, our founder and CEO, Damir Sable, was working with his 14-year-old son at the time, trying to help him with his math homework. And Damir himself is a you know, computer scientist, engineer, very confident in math. And he said, look, if I'm struggling to help teach my son, imagine all the other parents out there, right? Because um, sometimes we just forget how to teach things. I don't know the last time you tried to do a limit function was, but I think for most of us parents, it's not that big in our daily lives or, or things are taught differently now today than they were um, even, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago. And so mm -hmm. even for a basic subject like math. So, you know, in the study, when we found that 60% of Canadian parents felt um, like they didn't have the skill set to teach uh, and help their students with math problems, they are not alone. I think this is actually a global and universal issue um, that many parents were facing after the pandemic. Let me ask you something, and I'm kind of going off the path here a little bit, Jennifer, but I just wanted to get your, your perspective on this. Why is math so intimidating for most people? You know, it's one of those subjects that takes incredibly bright students and makes them feel, for lack of better words, and to put it a little crassly, unfortunately, stupid, right? Students get in their head this sense of, I'm either good at math or bad at math, as opposed to understanding that it's kind of, it's a growth journey, for most people and there will be the ups and downs and there and kind of by definition in that learning journey there will be struggles and feelings of like oh i can't get it or oh this is really difficult and for us a big part of helping students with the math is getting over that barrier and helping them feel um, confident about their skill set and ability uh, to learn math well it can be overwhelming and, and uh, you know in the interest of full disclosure i was not good at math in school uh, not, and probably intimidated by it as, as well. Uh, and you contrast that with uh, like our oldest daughter. She used to wear a T-shirt called I Heart Calculus. Uh, and both our daughters, our son for that matter, too, are, are great at math. I mean, it just seems to come naturally to them. Uh, but if you've already got this built-in you know, mental block about it, it's, it's going to make that much more difficult to learn it, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, we found that nearly 50% of the parents felt their kids just felt they were, quote, unquote, bad at math, right? Like intrinsically bad at math and not able to, um, you know, feel like they should be able to become good at it. And I think 
like you said, it's it's one of those things where when you, you start feeling confident, it just kind of builds on itself. And then for those students who just might struggle a little bit, and that's, you know, 50% right there, <laughs> half of them. Um, it's not that they're actually bad at math. It's just that they need to kind of um, be given and shown different paths and tools to be able to feel confident, like, yes, I can learn this at one point in time, or I will be able to get through this section. Well, and, and just in my case, I, you know, my last year of high school, I got a, a very good math teacher. He was, he was fabulous. And he, he could seem to just bottom line just about everything and said, this is this. And I actually did quite well that year in math. I mean, but, so you have to have that, that confidence, I guess, to do that. But you're right. I mean, I know the survey pointed this out, and I'm sure you guys see this all the time. Where you know if you're not doing well at it, uh, you just automatically write yourself off and say, "Well, I'm just not mathy. I, I can't do this stuff." And period, end of sentence. And and as as a parent, you can't do that. As a student, you certainly can't do that. Uh, that's the app. So let, let me talk a little bit about photomath and exactly how that can be applicable to to what's going on here. Yeah. So you know, I think like you said, you had that teacher who helped you, right? That that great. Um, individual who who opened it up and made you feel like you could be confident in the subject. And some people find that in a teacher, some people find that in a tutor, but nowadays it's often really hard for students to get that additional supplemental help and support, right? Teachers are overwhelmed. They have huge class schedules. They often have many children within their, uh, within their classes and tutors are extremely expensive. Right? I think something like on average, you're finding tutors at 50, $60, but it's not uncommon for it to get up to $150 in an hour. And with rising inflation and the cost of other things, most parents um, can't really afford to, uh, you know, a specialized tutor for their students. And I think we found in the survey 46% said they would love to give their child a dedicated math tutor, but just simply can't afford it. Um, and this is where I think technology can really come in, right? This is where we can help try to provide access at scale to high quality education in a very systematic way. So at PhotoMath, you know, we use a combination of AI and honestly, the brilliant minds of several <laughs> of, of dozens of math teachers, and math PhDs to figure out what's the best way to explain the, high, the how and the why of math. How can we help students understand the problem that it is that, that they're trying to solve and start understanding the step and steps, the procedural approach on how to start tackling those types of problems. Um, and we do that, like I said, through this math app and a combination of, of software and, and math learning skills. Yeah, because that's a question. I mean, all parents get this at one point or another. You know, why do I even have to take math? You know, I'm, I'm not going to use this. And, and, and you've heard all those reasons, all those excuses, I guess they really are. Uh, and, you know, why do I need to learn this formula and that formula? And how do I, why should I do calculus and, and algebra and all these? And, and it's, it's basically dismissive of it because they find it overwhelming, I guess. Uh, but, but you're right. I guess what you have to do here is is is... It's it's analytical, really, isn't it? To to mm -hmm. approach it like that and 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 you know, develop a comfort level with it, from what I understand, anyway. Yeah, it's really about the problem solving, right? I think it it's fair. Sometimes each individual math equation and its isolation feels like what's the point? But it's really um it's the analytical thinking skills on how you um, approach math problems, um, and also you know just fundamentally, as we've seen, like math is the foundation to most STEM or science, technology, and during math courses going forward, right? And most of our jobs today, the growth of the economy is around STEM jobs. So it's even more critical that students feel comfortable with this foundation of math 
um, so that they can then go on to the physics or, um, you know, statistics and other areas um, that are kind of critical data science to kind of finding um, high paying jobs in the future. Well, they're all cousins, aren't they? I mean, mathematics, coding, I mean, go down the list here. The things that uh, that students these days have to, to have some knowledge of and, and hopefully some proficiency at uh, if they want to continue and, and, and move forward, not just in, in their education, but of course, in the in the in the professional world too it's it's an essential really and so i, I can understand uh you know the, the need for an app like this and and for me to say listen you, this will help you to do this i mean we do that all the time i mean you know that's 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 why you know computers are such a miraculous thing and the internet's such a miraculous thing because i don't know what this is i don't know how to do this well somebody does and i can go i can learn it from there so, so so the app is is Obviously, something that uh, I'm not going to get the numbers here that, that really is catching on. An awful lot of people thinking, "Hey, this works for us." How do how do you how does the process start, and how do you get people uh, and the and the app together so that they can find some some mutual uh, understanding of what's going on here? Yeah, so the app is readily available in um, the Apple App Store or Google Play Store. Um, you can just go there, search for Photo Math, P H O T O M A T H, download it. Um, and then open it up. It's uh, a fr it's mostly free. There is a paid for version, but um, the free version allows you to pretty much scan any type of math problem and start trying to understand how and the why, the steps of how to approach and solve this problem with um, additional helpful information about, well, what does this term mean? Um, why do I need to take this step? And, and sometimes, um, in some cases, some animations around um, real kind of fundamental concepts. Well, and, you know, I, I, I'm looking at the numbers here. I mean, you have had over 300 million downloads already uh, through this. So, I mean, clearly uh, people understand that there's a need here for something like this. And you, you mentioned a couple of minutes ago, and that was a stat that jumped out at me when I was reading your material last night. Uh, every parent I know who's got problems with their kids at school says, I wish I could get a tutor. Uh, for, and you're absolutely right. They're, they're expensive if you can even find one. Uh, and even then... You know, I, I related back to that story about my teacher in, in my last year of high school. There's got to be a, a count of a chemistry, you know, between the teacher and the student. And you don't always get that with a tutor. Uh, but, you know, there's there's an element here with you using the app. I mean, uh, that's your partner. You can navigate yourself through the app, can't you? Yeah. And. A lot of this is also being able to meet you when you need to study, right? Like you said, if you can find a tutor, and that is, can you find this, like, if even if you identify somebody, can you get on the right schedule with them? And we all know kids, how busy kids' schedules are these days. What's great about having the technology or kind of this idea of a tutor, you know, in your pocket through your mobile phone is that you can do it any time of day, whenever works well for you, um, you know, be it 10 o'clock at night if, if some sports practice ran late or on the weekends um, and any kind of odd hours that help students where many times they can't reach out to a friend or a tutor or a teacher at those hours. Um, so for us, it's really about accessibility and how do we use technology to bring this to as many people as possible um, and in an affordable way as possible. Well, and I'm, I'm thinking of the impact it's going to have on the student themselves. And we've talked about how math can be intimidating and, 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 you know, as a result, we, we tend to want to shy away from it. But those who feel intimidated by it want to shy away from it anyway. But the the the, the reverse of that is also true. Uh, if if you get this and if you can be comfortable with this, I, I got to assume that's going to help self-esteem for the student as well. If you know, I can handle this and I can handle this. And, and as you say, it's problem solving and analytical. Uh, and those are skills you can carry on to just about every other facet of education. 
Yeah, we we fully agree. For us, it's really about um, making sure students think that they can learn math, right? Like that they are capable to do so. And I think for us, the most rewarding are when we hear reviews and from parents um, about how their kids like started to re-engage in school, felt confident about their abilities. And sometimes it's just being able to see a problem explained, you know, not just one time, but five times, 10 times, a hundred times, um, and potentially in different ways so that a student can start understanding and start making those connections and, and eventually to make those connections independently um, on their own as well. Well, the stress levels, I mean, you know, because I, 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 I've known students and, and you know, they're, they're just overwhelmed. They look at a math problem that's presented to them and they just all of a sudden is, well, this is just too much for me. And uh, what, what I learned, and I guess what, you know, people that can be proficient in math learn is that you don't look, you know, you, you break it down and, and you know, it's, it's, and that's the whole thing about formulas in math. I know they learned that the hard way too. Uh, you know, apply the formula to it. And it's amazing how the, you kind of guide through and slide through it because you've got the knowledge of what has to be applied there. And uh, if you get an app, such as what you guys have here with, with photomath uh, it's right there for you and and of course you know you don't have to feel embarrassed about asking a question or intimidated by it because it's an app and you, the app will would be there for you and you can go back and and i guess it's it's the sort of thing that's going to ease uh, the students mind about exactly what they have to learn here yep and it, and you you know one of the things is is that math tends to build on itself right you need to kind of learn one topic before you can learn another topic and unfortunately the way that school is is necessarily run is that you kind of have to learn a topic and then just move on and then so that you can cover enough content in a given year. Um, what this also allows you to do is to go back to fundamental issues, right? Like maybe you didn't quite understand what it like how to do long division. And you need that as a basic skill for things like algebra, right? Or you don't mm -hmm. quite understand what it means to calculate a least common denominator or understand fractions. And so um, what this app also allows you to do is to kind of go back into individual steps that you might feel a little bit uncomfortable with and dig deeper. Um, and so that you don't have to, you know, you can kind of, we can meet you where you are in your learning journey. It's got to be a good study buddy there for the students too. I mean, because it's, it's right there in front of you if you want to recap and, and go over things. As, as I say, before you get into you know exam situations or whatever the case might be, it it's, uh, sounds like a pretty handy tool. Uh, and congratulations on it. I think it's a wonderful idea. And, and uh, the number of, uh, of downloads I see that you've got on this, I think is indicative of the fact that uh, that you know parents are concerned and they want they want let's face it we all as parents want what's best for our kids, and this is a tool that uh, that is a must have I guess uh, when we're looking at uh, you know what's going on with the world these days and the advancements that are happening these days we want them all to be part of that and uh, to succeed in it so you know, every little tool that we can get and uh, I think the days of sitting down at the kitchen table and saying let me help you with your math homework are probably long gone. I mean, parents have their own stressful situations. Kids have their own stressful situations. Uh, this seems to be the solution for it. So uh, I'm glad you had some time to talk to us about this. And uh, and uh, some of the, our listeners, of course, that might want to be interested in this, they can, I, I guess, Google is there. A, you must have a web page, obviously. And, or you can go to the Apple Store and get all the information uh, on your phone about what's going on there. Uh, great talking with you today, Jennifer. Thank you so much for this. Thank you, Bill. It was a pleasure. Take care. Jennifer Lee, who is the uh, Chief Growth Officer at Photomath, and uh, interesting app. And uh, Where was that when I was in school? I, uh, but anyway. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Right now, as, uh, as we talk here this morning, uh, European uh, countries are, are getting together to talk about energy. I mean, you know, we complain about the price of gasoline at the pumps here, and we've got some concerns about what's happening uh, here. But 
it's a crisis over there. Uh, and a lot of it has to do with their reliance on Russian uh, oil and gas, uh, which is uh, slowly but surely being uh, turned off. And uh, they get they need a plan B. And uh, Ian Lee is going to join us right now to talk about this. Ian, of course, is his associate professor at the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Ian, thank you for the time. It's great to have you with us again today. Uh, my pleasure, Bill. Thank you. Uh, when, it, when it comes to what the uh, Europeans are talking about here, I guess that old phrase, desperate times call for desperate measures, uh, comes to mind right now. Uh, they're talking about doing some pretty radical things here to try to, to compensate for, for the, the reliance that they have had on, on Russian uh, energy for quite some time now, aren't they? You're right. In fact, it has been compared, and it's a fair comparison, to wartime. And I mean by that the Second World War when they had rationing. Now, in the Second World War, they rationed all kinds of things, because my late mother used to tell me about they rationed butter and uh, food products and so forth. In this instance, they're going to be doing various forms of rationing in terms of power. Uh, they're going to be using um, uh, price controls. Um, there's going to be subsidies coming from government to individual consumers uh, for the um, for the, um, uh, the you know the the consumption because the prices of natural gas and oil uh, and and electricity are just going through the roof. So they're going to be using a lot of let's call them non-market measures. These are government regulatory measures, such as capping the price of heating natural gas and capping the price of electricity. And uh, they're doing this because they literally have no alternative in the short run. Now, I think that they've got some interesting um, things they can do in the medium term. And medium to me, in this instance, does not mean 10 or 20 years. They're actually building floating LNG terminals using um, old tankers. Uh, because normally it takes you know five years or more to build a physical LNG terminal on a on a port city on, on the edge of you know any body of water. Well, they're doing some very innovative things where they can they are claiming they can build floating LNG terminals to bring in more LNG from America or Canada or the Middle East in less than 12 months. So there's things they can be doing literally by 2023 to alleviate the problem. But right now today, and I'm talking September the 9th, 2022, for the winter coming forward, coming up in uh, uh, Europe, I think they're going to have to resort mostly to non-market measures. I mean by non-market measures, regulating the price and, uh, and uh, special extraordinary windfall taxes on, on certain companies. That sort of thing is what they're going to end up doing uh, to, de- to address this crisis. But as I was looking at this list, and, and you know, as an economist, and I guess um, I, 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 you must be looking at this too and say, this is, looks like a list of all the things you're not supposed to do with an economy. Exactly. As you say, price control, all these things. And, yeah, and yeah. ordinarily, they X that out and say, no, that's not, that's not even on the table. Uh, but they have to be right now. They're, they're not a whole, I mean, yeah. they've been trying to subsidize people in the, in the short term, but no government yeah. can do that for any length of time. So uh, it's, it's going to get ugly there, isn't it? Bill, you're absolutely right, and don't and you know as you know, I'm, I'm I really do believe in market economies. I think they're far more efficient. The wealthiest sure. con- countries in the world with the greatest prosperity, highest average income, are the market economies of Europe and Canada and the U.S. and so forth. I, I'm not suggesting this is oh whoopee whoopee an ideal situation. Look, let me put it even more bluntly: they really screwed up extremely badly. This is going to be studied to death for years to come. The catastrophically bad, horrible decision by then Chancellor Merkel to. Uh, to uh, uh, close down nuclear. 
which was just absolutely catastrophically disastrous because what they did and and closing down coal, oil, oil and gas. So they put them at their self and put themselves completely in the hands of Vladimir Putin. Now, people could some people could say in their defense, well, they didn't know. Well, that's nonsense. There's been people who have been saying for years, I'm one of them. Don't you can never trust. I was saying this 15, 20 years ago. I said, anybody who invests in Russia, they're going to kiss their their money goodbye. It's just a, a recipe for disaster. And I was not the only one who had some special magical insight. His track record has been has been very, very clear to anybody who uh, is not in denial. They made enormous policy mistakes in saying closing down the uh, the fossil fuels and nuclear before they had alternative measures in place. Now, in the short run, they have to adopt these uh, draconian uh, uh, warlike measures, uh, wartime measures of rationing of energy prices. Literally, they're going to be telling certain industries, you have no power this winter. They're going to be telling consumers, you cannot heat your house above a certain temperature. Like, this is going to get very, very ugly. There's going to be industries that are closed down because they're not going to be high enough on the priority list. There's going to, governments are going to run up huge deficits, subsidizing consumers to keep the price affordable for, for consumers. So the next 12 months in Europe is going to be very, very bad, very, very ugly. You know, I've I've read two or three different accounts of this over the last 24 hours or so about this meeting that's going on today, Ian. And, and I'm glad you brought up the nuclear aspect because I I was looking actually for that as, as 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 something that they may bring up and say, you know, can we do anything about this? They're not even talking about it. Uh, you no. know, the, these draconian measures, but they have never said. Uh, I don't know if it's because they don't want to admit that they did screw up as badly as they did, but it it, it seems as if they said, well, we're not even going to talk nuclear, and and I, I think they're doing that at, at, at their own peril, really. Well, they are. And the irony is, I mean, the argument by grains, just to give them credit, some credit, they're saying, look, you know, the earth's on fire, you know, the, the global warming, which is true. I don't dispute. Well, I don't agree the earth is on fire. I don't believe we're all going to die. I think there's been a, a exaggeration. And even the IPC acknowledges that this is not going to, you know, there's parts of the world that are going to actually profit from global warming, like northern Russia and northern Canada, because it'll become more hospitable. But there's parts of the world that are going to become uninhabitable, um, uh, parts of uh, the, the hottest, you know, the, the central parts of the world, uh, parts of the Middle East will become uninhabitable. I'm not advocating that. I'm not celebrating that. I'm simply saying that it's not as catastrophic as they've said. But the point being, where I want to go with this, Bill, is that in shutting down nuclear and uh, fossil fuels, meaning coal, uh, uh, gas, and natural gas and oil, all they've done is, is they've driven people back to that which is most readily available. Because when you're desperate, you do desperate things. What is the most available fuel in Europe? I can tell you, I've been there. I've taught in southern Poland. It's coal. It's very dirty coal, actually. It's not even the cleaner coal, which is a contradiction because all coal is dirty. But they're going, they're already, in fact, there's been stories in the papers. People are lining up across Poland to buy coal to heat their homes this winter. And German factories, you can bet there's German homes that are going to be using coal. So this is a sort of a, a superb example of the road to hell is paved with the very, very best of intentions. They said, we want to get rid of fossil fuels, so they ended up adopting policies that are going to cause people to go back and use more of the dirtiest of all the fossil fuels, which is coal. I saw a story uh, the other day, uh, and uh, this, I guess, as, as you mentioned, Ian, underscores just how desperate they are there. Uh, the story, anyway, essentially said that one of the top Google searches in Germany right now is firewood. 
which tells you just how how frightening this this is going to be. And and it's and it goes back, as you say, to the reliance on Russian energy. Uh, Russia supplied forty percent of the EU's uh, total consumption of natural gas last year. That's down to nine percent right now. And winter's coming on. So, uh, you know, the, the the clock is ticking as far as they're concerned. But let me ask you about the implications of this. Because as you say, there's for every action, there's a reaction. And uh, when you start putting surcharges on the companies that are supplying the energy, as they're planning to do, and they say, we're going to redistribute that to the people that are having problems paying their bills, which sounds like a wonderful idea, uh, except that the companies themselves are going to respond. I mean, you know, there's always a concern here that they're going to say, well, you know what, we're going to cut production then. I mean, and if we're not going to make any money from this why are we even doing this uh and we're not even yet mentioning the fact that putin himself is going to retaliate as soon as as he finds out that he's going to have to get less money for the the stuff that he is pumping over there he's basically saying i'll shut the whole thing off then you know bill you did brought up something that's really fascinating and i and no one's really talking about it so i'm glad you brought it up uh these uh, measures are so draconian i mean companies they're actually discussing some companies and industries are going to be cut off because they're not high enough on the on the priority list, because not everybody's going to be given energy because there's a shortage. Okay, we all understand that. One of the consequences, and if people want to Google this phrase, deindustrialization. Look, let's say you're a big company, a big successful company, and you're in Germany or France or Italy, and you can't get enough energy to run your company uh, in your factories or your plants and so forth. Well, there's this country beckoning across the ocean. It's called the United States of America, and it's the largest economy in the world, actually. And uh, I would be awfully tempted to say, you know, they've got uh, what, 200 years, 300 years of oil and natural gas and all kinds of energy. And they're not so foolish that they're shutting down all of their natural resources, including their fossil fuels. And I think that you're going to see companies relocating. So you've got this peculiar a trend going on. It's fascinating. You have companies pulling out of China, uh, and this is being written up and discussed in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, companies quietly pulling out of China because of the geopolitical tensions between China and the U.S. So there, there's some deindustrialization uh, going on with companies pulling back to the U.S. And then you're going to have some relocating from Europe, not because of geopolitical tensions, but because they don't have enough energy. And the net winner in all of this I want to put this out there as baldly and bluntly as possible, Bill. The net winner in all of this, big picture, stand back, look at the big global picture, is the United States. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why the U.S. dollar is going through the roof is because the the smart money and the smart people are looking at this and saying, who's going to profit from all of this? Not because of any deliberate nefarious conspiracy, but because of the factors at play, the geopolitical factors at play, shortages, desperate shortages of energy in Europe, whereas there's plentiful energy in North America. These Some of these companies, many of these are going to look at coming over here to North America to relocate and companies pulling out of China because of all the the tensions and the problems between China and the U.S. and the net beneficiary, and uh, it will be U.S., and we will be a secondary beneficiary because, of course, we're right next door, and we have a NAFTA agreement and an integrated economy with the U.S. I'm not celebrating. I'm not saying, well, you know, whoopee, whoopee. I'm just interpreting the meaning of these trends that we are observing. But uh, I've got a couple of minutes left here. Let's talk about the long-term implications of that. And as you say, it's it's not as if, hey, this might happen. It's already starting to happen uh, in other regions, and, and it may well happen in Europe as a result of this. Uh, the old phrase, and once they're gone, they're not coming back. What's that going to do right. long-term to the European economy? 
I, I have been, been pessimistic, not so pessimistic as I am this, this moment, for Europe for a long time. I've been there many times. It's beautiful. My late father came from UK. I actually have a UK passport, even though I'm not a citizen, because my father was born there. I've been all over Europe teaching for 30 years. I love going to Europe. But I'm, I'm, I'm more and more pessimistic uh, uh, because they have, uh, their populations are collapsing because of demography. Their birth rates are negative in just about every country in, in Europe. And then the other is this issue of energy that they made. They bet the farm on the green vision which was to you know decarbonize very very quickly before they developed alternative supplies and energy is the lifeblood of any economy you it's not a, like a t-shirt it's not a discretionary purchase that you can postpone it is the blood supply of the of the economic artery the arteries of the economy you cannot have a modern economy without energy reliable energy and so if this does in fact as i think it's going to as you and i have just discussed is going to push some companies to relocate. In fact, I think a significant number will be saying, you know, I can't stay in Europe because they're not reliable and they're, they're going down a road that is not going to be helpful to my company. And this is going to push more companies to move to North America. And so the ironically, go, looking forward, I'm talking 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years, the future is the brightest. And I've said this in my classes to my students, the future, I think, is brightest uh, in the world for the uh, two countries of uh, this region. I'm talking Canada and the U.S., because we've got plentiful energy, we're surrounded on three sides by oceans, and we have rule of law, market economy, competitive economies, and uh, whereas China has all kinds of problems with repression and authoritarianism, Russia's uh, de-industrializing, and Europe, ironically, appears to be going down that road, too, because of lack of energy. And now I'm not celebrating this. I'm not saying, whoopee, whoopee, aren't we clever? I'm just saying, as a, as a consequence, I think that Canada and the U.S. are going to come out of this stronger and better off, ironically and paradoxically, from this, these, these tragic circumstances that are in Europe today. We had a discussion with the German Chancellor just a couple of weeks ago. I know uh, about a little liquid national gas, and, and we can't get it over there because we're not going to build the plant on the East Coast. The Prime Minister pretty much said, well, if the private sector yeah. wants to do it, we'll help, but we're not going to yeah. do it. Uh, we're going to keep shipping stuff off of our West Coast. Uh, but with these floating uh, elements that they, the European countries are looking at, is Canada still going to have to play a role in this? I mean, can, are they going to have to increase exports to try to help these people out? I think you've asked an excellent uh, political question. I think this year, uh, this winter, if, if, it, if it's a really bad winter, a really cold winter, and there's a lot of serious suffering, and it's on the television screens every night around the world, I think this is going to put incredible pressure on Prime Minister Trudeau. You just can't stand up there every night and say, oh, well, uh, life, life sucks. You know, that's just too bad for the Europeans. They made some bad choices. You can't do that politically. And I think this is going to put enormous pressure on Trudeau, on every MP to say, look, we've got to help them. We can't just stand by idly and thumb our nose at them. And it depends on how bad the winter is and how cold. If they have a mild winter, it won't be so bad. If they have a really bad winter, then there's going to be some ugly suffering. And that's going to boomerang back politically on here in Canada, I think, and put enormous pressure on the government to go into high gear and build some of these floating terminals, which apparently can be built very, very quickly. Ian, uh, as always, thank you so much for this. Uh, some dire circumstances going on in Europe. I'll certainly track that and stay in touch. Appreciate it. Have a good weekend. We'll talk again soon. My pleasure, Bill. Thanks very much. Ian Lee from uh, Carleton University, of course, in the Sprott School of Business. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.
The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.